Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And just a little preview of what's ahead. Next week, we'll be back in Philippians, and it will be our last sermon through the book of Philippians. But today, being Father's Day, there are a number of subjects that I could address and a number of things I preached on previously, but I wanted to bring our attention to this passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Every time I read that passage, I am reminded that the fourth sermon I ever preached was on this passage about 36 years ago in 1987 at the age of 20. I preached or have preached and have taught on this passage at Grace Fellowship Church at least five times, 2003, 2008, 2014. I have alluded to this passage when teaching on various things during our Bible study time in biblical counseling and counseling those who have committed sexual immorality. I have referred to this passage on numerous times, like when preaching through Hebrews in Hebrews 13.4, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So I've made reference to this passage. I preached through it many times through the years. And with every passing year, And every time that we look at this passage, the moral environment of the world in which we live seems to disintegrate more and more. Sexual immorality seems to run more and more rampant around us. And I won't take this morning to chronicle the moral decay and degradation that has occurred in our country and in the world. The culture in which these believers, to whom this was originally written in Thessalonica, these believers lived in a a culture filled with immorality. They lived in a culture with a Greco-Roman religion full of immorality, prostitution, impurity. And people at that time would go to a temple to worship their false god and on the way They believed they could commune with that false god by having relations with a prostitute. During this time, sins 
Sexual sins were common, they were acceptable, they were tolerated, and even encouraged and advocated. And that was the culture in which these believers in Thessalonica lived. And our culture is filled with the same degradation. But what is more alarming is the hold that immorality has on professing believers. Sexual sins are epidemic in the church and not just outside the church in the world. It shouldn't be this way. With today being Father's Day, I know it's not a very, you might say, encouraging Father's Day message, but I believed it would be for the benefit of our souls to visit this passage once again. It's needful. Because sexual sins are destroying churches and families. And men in particular, though not exclusively, are those who are typically enslaved to these kinds of sins. There are a number of sins that tend to entangle men and enslave them today, even within the church. Anger is one of them. Instead of a righteous anger and holy passions... Men tend to struggle with sinful anger. Spiritual laziness is another sin that men in the church seem to struggle with. Notice that I said spiritual laziness. Men can be hard workers. They can be busy with all kinds of things, even work itself, but not do it to the glory of God. And they can work and be busy working to neglect of the responsibilities they have in the home and in the church. And in this category of spiritual laziness is often an enslavement to entertainment. Leisure, which has its place, can dominate a man's life when he should be feeding his soul and serving his home and his church. Drunkenness is another sin that men tend to get enslaved to. Far too often, men use alcohol to escape and to cope. And they are far too often lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But lust and sexual morality is another. This is the primary subject of the passage I just read. And unfortunately, lust and sexual morality is pervasive among men who profess faith in Christ. It's hard. I'm speaking to you from my heart. It's hard to find a man who has not bowed the knee to immorality and worshiped at the altar of sexual sins. It's actually hard to find a man today in the church professing believers who are not enslaved to one degree or another to this sin. And again, it shouldn't be that way. At the root of it is selfishness and pride. At the root of it is the love of self rather than the love of God. At the root of it is idolatry rather than the worship of the one true God. At the root of every sin is idolatry, but As we talk about this particular sin, at the root of it is really bowing down to ourselves and sinful pleasures that we get some passing 
pleasure in, rather than bowing before the God who is great. So the remedies to this sin include killing pride and cultivating humility. A humility that bows down before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. The remedies include an ever-increasing love for God, a longing for passion for the, and passion for the glory of God, which in turn will produce holy longings and holy passions rather than unholy longings and unholy passions. And from this love for God will then flow a man's love for his wife, a love for his children, a love for his church, a love for his neighbor, a love for those lost in sin. Holy loves rather than sinful lusts will spring from a man's heart when he is pursuing love for God and pursuing the glory of God in his life. And from this humility, worship of the Lord Jesus, love for God will flow from his life and it will be a life that is then ordered and directed by the word of God. Men, this is what we must strive for by grace. This is what we must cultivate in our lives. We are called to be men, holy men, humble men under the lordship of Christ. Men who love what is holy and hate what is evil. And men who bear this fruit in their lives will live to the glory of God. And so men, this morning, let us heed this exhortation from the word of God. This would have been read to a whole congregation when this letter was received from the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. But this morning in particular, while not exclusively, I want to address you men. Heed this exhortation from the word of God. And I want to exhort you to be honest about where you are spiritually and in particular in this area of sexuality. Look with me at the passage. The Apostle Paul, born along by the Holy Spirit to write sacred scripture, instructs believers concerning this matter in this way. Finally then, brethren... He's writing to Christians. And so are you a Christian? Well, this is for you. Paul has already called them the church in chapter 1, verse 1. Those loved by God in verse 4 of chapter 1. Chosen of God. Those who have placed their faith in God in chapter 1, verse 8. Those who have turned to God from idols in chapter 1, verse 9. Those who are waiting for the Lord Jesus to return, who rescues from the wrath to come. He's writing to brethren. He's writing to Christians. Those justified by the blood of Jesus. As those who have been saved by grace, they needed instruction, they needed exhortations concerning sexual purity. And they needed it over and over again. And so he says, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction, they had already received instruction, but they needed to hear it again. 
They already knew God's will in this matter, but they needed to be exhorted to obey it again. And the truth is, we need to hear these exhortations over and over again. And if you don't think you need to hear it, quite honestly, you're in a very dangerous position. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Paul is writing to Christians that he's actually saying, you are doing well by the grace of God. He says they have been obeying these things, this instruction they had heard. And he tells them to excel still more. So he's not actually rebuking them for having committed various sexual sins. He's just saying you need to be reminded you are in a world that is pressing on you. You have a heart that is still affected by the fall and corruption and you're not yet freed from this fallen state and so you need to hear it again those who get angry and offended when exhorted not to sin in a specific area are sometimes the ones who are sinning in that specific area but men a humble man welcomes exhortations against any and all sin whether we're committing them or not. And so I plead with you to open your ears and your hearts. Be attentive to what this passage says. The subject of the passage is holiness, but in particular as it relates to this area of sexuality. It's a passage about how we ought to walk and please God. In verse 1 it says, and in verse 3 It's a passage about what is the will of God for our lives, our sanctification, our holiness, that we would be progressively more and more conformed to the image of Christ. But then more specifically, it's holiness in regard to sexual immorality. So he says in verse 3, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. He tells them in verse 4 that they are to possess their own vessels in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, verse 5, like the Gentiles who do not know God. They're not called for the purpose of impurity in verse 7, but in sanctification. So what he is calling them to is holiness, pleasing God, growing in sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ, but in particular, an ever-increasing holiness which manifests itself in sexual purity. And so the subject is an ever-increasing holiness in particular in regard to sexual purity. And so he addresses what he calls in verse 3, Sexual immorality. The Greek word behind that translation, sexual morality, is the word pornea. Sounds familiar to you. It's the word from which we get our English word pornography. But pornea in the Greek, here translated sexual morality, refers to every kind of extramarital, unlawful, or unnatural sexual behavior as defined by God. So this includes the lust of the eyes, which would include pornography, but not only that, any lustful look upon another. It would include fornication, premarital sex. It would include adultery, extramarital sex. 
It would include things like prostitution, bestiality, and all other forms of sexual and moral behavior. The word pornea, sexual morality here, refers to any and every type of unlawful, unholy sexual relations, faults of any kind. Therefore, any sexual behavior outside of the monogamous marriage relationship between one man and one woman is sin against God. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's God's design. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality or what he describes in verse 7 as impurity. Impurity, which is indecency. It's speaking here again of sexual impurity. It is a word that is coupled with other similar words, or not coupled, but found with, grouped with other similar words, like Colossians 3 verse 5, when it speaks of the deeds of the flesh, we're to consider ourselves as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, referring to sinful passions, evil desire. Or in Galatians 5.19, immorality, impurity, sensuality. So here, impurity in 1 Thessalonians 4.7 refers to all kinds of indecency, which would even include immodesty, how one presents oneself outwardly. And again, of course, pornography is in this category of impurity. So God's word is not unclear. It's very plain about what immoral behavior is. Now the world now more than ever defines what is right and wrong in this area in a way that is completely inconsistent with the word of God. And we shouldn't be surprised because Romans 1 verse 30 says that ultimately those who deny there's a God and suppress the truth and unrighteousness will become inventors of evil. But I want to encourage you, men in particular, you can remain sexually pure in an impure society. You can remain sexually pure not only in the culture we live in, but with those things pressing upon your heart, which is still corrupt. You have remaining corruption until you see Christ face to face. So the question is how? How do we remain sexually pure? Well, the instruction in this passage tells us how. And it doesn't begin first and foremost with addressing how you abstain from sexual morality. It begins by addressing one's walk with God. It begins by addressing the direction of one's life. Is it Godward? Because that's at the root of the matter. Men, is your life Godward? And are you pursuing a path of righteousness because you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and now your whole life is pursuing holiness as defined by God. And so a life of sexual, sexual purity, men, begins with a vital walk with God, pleasing God, a pursuit of holiness. 
We could say it this way. Sexual purity, men, begins with an ever-increasing holiness. How do I walk in sexual purity? Have pleasing God as the focus of your life. What is the theme of your life? What is really your life about? If people observe your life and they were to say, and they were to honestly answer the question, what is this man's theme of his life? What directs him? What is it? What would they say as they observe it, as they hear you talk, as they see your life and decisions you're making about various things in your life? What would they say is the driving force? Would they say and observe it's pleasing God? This man is Godward. And he has an ever-increasing godliness and holiness about him. That's where Paul begins. Verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us as to how you ought to, here it is, walk and please God. The goal and motivation of the Christian must be to please God, that my life, my walk would please God. In the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. This must be your aim. The whole aim of your life. I've often used the illustration about many things, so you've heard this before, but it, I think it illustrates it well. Again, I've asked you before, is your life more like a balloon or an arrow? Is it more like the balloon that you put air in and you let it go and it just randomly seems to flutter around the room and gets a good laugh, but it doesn't accomplish anything? Or is your life more like an arrow and there's a target and it is pointed at the target? I want to please God. I want to glorify God. And it goes through the air and you can hear it as it passes by. Is that your life? Or is it aimless? Because it begins with this. So often we say, oh, I don't want to commit this sin anymore. When it begins with, Are you walking in such a way that you want to please God? Because an aimless life leads to all kinds of sins, and sexual sin will be one of them. That's why I mentioned spiritual laziness before. Spiritual laziness is really an aimlessness in the Christian life. And it really ends up with a target but the target is self and selfishness love of self pride humility and listen the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes always go with the boastful pride of life so is pleasing god your ambition is his glory in your life your passion. If not, then unholy passions will dominate your life. Now, we ask the question then, well, how do I know what pleases God? Paul addresses that in verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. 
Again, we know how to please God because we've been given commandments, precepts, commands, instruction, and it's been given by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God has revealed to us what his will is. So how do I please God? By walking according to his commandments. And Paul is saying, we're just reminding you, and I want to write to you again, I request, please, men, I request of you, I ask you, and he says, exhort you. I want to exhort you and call you in the Lord Jesus to live this way, to live according to commandments given by God in his word. Commandments that are from the authority of, notice, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you're to walk. There is a standard and God sets the standard. He is the standard. He said, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the standard for pleasing God is commandments given to us in his word. We do not live by feelings. We live by commandments. The standard is never whatever feels good do it. The standard is always what has God already objectively said that is based upon his character, that is based upon what he has created in the beginning in these things. So are you living by commandments, the principles of scripture, or are you men, which we tend to think ladies live by feelings, or more prone to do that? Men, when we sin in this way, we are living by feelings rather than commandments. If you're to please God, you must live by the book. You must walk according to commandments. This matter of pleasing God not only touches our standard for moral purity, but the motivation for moral and sexual purity. See, this is the issue in the Christian life. Whom will you please? This gets to the motivation. Whom do you want to please? Remember in Philippians 1, verse 21, Paul said, For to me to live is Christ. He wanted to please the Lord, his Savior. And so that must be our motivation. Other motivations might help, but they're secondary or tertiary or wherever you want to put them. Other motivations aren't enough. Love for your spouse is not enough to remain sexually pure. It is a God-given means by which you remain pure. Love your wife, but it's not the greatest commandment. It's not the greatest motivation. The desire to be faithful to your marriage vows is not enough. Your spouse's beauty and looks and appeal is not enough. The motivation, men, must be to please God. Will this please my Savior? And Paul says, listen, this is how you must walk. Notice the words in verse 1. That as you received instruction from us, instruction as to how you 
Here's how it's translated in the American Standard. Ought to walk. Ought to. The word behind this means it's of necessity. It's a must. This is how you must walk. This is from the Lord Jesus. And he commands us to walk in this way. He calls us to this holy duty and obligation. One commentator said this. The word for ought is usually translated must and denotes the compulsion of duty. It stresses the moral obligation resting upon them because of their personal relationship to the Lord. Christian living is not a desirable option, but a compelling obligation. See, sometimes we live as, oh, I want to live the Christian life when it's beneficial to me here. That's not the moral obligation. The moral obligation is, I am compelled to live according to the commandments of Christ at all times. He is my Savior and my Lord. And so we must walk in this way. Men, if we're going to be sexually pure, we must have as our ambition, our goal to please God. At the root of this ever-increasing holiness is a desire to please God. So that's how. Please God. Have that as your focus. And in your pleasing God, you could say, secondly, excel still more. Just to use the words at the end of verse 1. He says you're actually walking in this way. And he's praising God for that. You're actually walking and pleasing God. But I want you to excel still more. Men, are you sexually pure by the grace of God because your ambition is to please God? Then excel still more. Never be satisfied with where you are. Because when you are, you'll be most vulnerable then to fall. Again, another commentator said this, there is no finality in practical holiness in the life of the believer. There's no finality, not in this life, only when we see him face to face. And so... Paul says, you have to excel still more. You have to continue to grow. You have to continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're never standing still. You're either growing or you're going to be compromising. So Paul says, don't be satisfied with where you are. Even though you see the grace of God in your life, this desire and motivation to please him, and you're actually walking according to that, But don't be satisfied with that. There should be this ever-increasing pursuit to please Him more. And abounding more and more. And the more you do that, the more you're headed that direction, this ever-increasing holiness, then the more you will guard your soul from those dangers of sexual immorality. So in this ever-increasing holiness, there's at the root of it this desire to please God, to continue to grow, to excel still more. And then there is this pursuit of the will of God. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The best defense against ungodliness is godliness. Again, you remember, these are principles of sanctification. You don't just put off sin, you must put on righteousness. So he brings to their attention, here is the will of God. 
This is what we know to be the will of God in our lives. I don't know what car you should buy. I don't know what house you should buy. I don't even know for sure whom you should marry. I know some principles. But what I can say with certainty, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And this is our whole class in our discipleship group, basically, on discerning the will of God. What you should do is be focusing on growing in holiness as we find in the word of God, and that will guard your soul, and he will providentially lead you and guide you. So pursue the will of God. This is the will of God. So there's the focus. He begins not with sexual immorality and how to avoid it, but he begins with this must be your life. Please, God, excel still more. Pursue the will of God. And then he gets in specific instructions regarding holiness in regard to sexuality and he does so with three clauses in the new american standard they all begin with the word that it's in verse three it's in verse four it's in verse six that you abstain from sexual morality that verse four each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor verse six and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Now he's getting specific. This is God's will. This should be the pursuit of your life. And in particular, abstain from sexual morality. Know how to possess your own vessel. And no man should transgress and defraud his brother. Look at those three specifics that he gives. First, abstain. That is... Verse 3, that you abstain from sexual morality. This word translated abstain in some cases has to do with a measurement in regard to distance. And it means to be distant from something. But here in particular in the context, it means therefore to keep away from, hence to abstain from something. It's Said that way in 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you, Peter says, to abstain from fleshly lusts. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee sexual morality. And there you get the idea that you run away from it. You're trying to remove yourself from it. The way you abstain from it is to stay as far away from it as you can. Hold your finger in 1 Thessalonians 4 and turn over to Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, verse 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Proverbs 5, verse 2. That you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. Then he begins to describe the appeal of the lust of the flesh. And the enticing adulterous woman for the lips of an adulterous drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. It's enticing, but understand where it leads. Verse 4, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. So then he says, son, 
Listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. So here's his instruction. Having described the danger that's there and where it leads, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Listen, you don't read that in this way, and you certainly don't instruct your sons in this way. Do not go far from her. Keep your feet far from her house. There's passion here. Son, listen to me. This is a dangerous thing that is common to you and to all. Keep your way. Abstain. Stay. The way you do that is you need to stay far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. You can't handle that. Where the adulterous woman is found, where sexual morality is found, the Christian should not be found. Back to 1 Thessalonians. Well, excuse me, stay there a minute. Look in verse, or chapter 6, verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching and and the teaching is light and reproofs for, reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her, eye, her eyelids. There again, the appeal, she's trying to entice you. And he reminds them, here's the end. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. And an adulteress hunts for the precious life. And then he warns of the consequences. You can't go there and not be affected. If you get too close, you're going to be burned. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes and his clothes and not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? You know the answer to that. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. In other words, there are consequences to sin. And he's warning them of this. And he's saying, don't even let it be something you desire. So here it's not only stay far away, but guard your heart and see it for what it is so you're not drawn to it and beginning to desire it. So it's not only abstaining in distance and staying far away, but abstaining from this in your mind. Don't desire it. Don't dwell on it. Don't allow through the eye gate these things to come in. Stay far away in every way. Because here's the slippery slope. You get closer and closer. You see that which is impure. Your sinful desires are incited. Your lusts increase. You think about it more and more. You move away from that which is holy and good. And then you suddenly commit the act. And reduce to nothing more than a loaf of bread. So the, the instruction back in 1 Thessalonians 4 is abstain. Abstain, completely abstain. Don't dabble in it. Don't get close to it. 
Don't see how much you can handle. Stay far away. That means you need certain protections. Men, if you need this protection, do not go on your computer or your phone after a certain hour or with someone beside you. If that's what you need to do in the words of Jesus to pluck out your right eye and cut out, off your right hand in order to not commit those sins, then you practically do what you need to do. Flee it. Repent of it. Put the safeguards there to practically stay far away from it. Abstain from sexual immorality. But not only that, then he says in verses 4 and 5, learn how to control your body. Here's the second that, explaining what the will of God is. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now I don't have time to get into this. Some interpret this to mean, but instead you should acquire a wife. Here referred to as a vessel. Sometimes the Bible refers to a wife as a vessel. I won't get into all that detail So some interpret this, but instead you need to know how to acquire and possess a wife. But more likely here, the vessel is referring to the body, where Paul calls his body an earthen himself, an earthen vessel, weak and frail. And the idea here is that each of you need to know how to possess your own body, not in lustful passion, but in sanctification and honor. So you need to know how to do that. You need to exercise self-control. You need to know your weaknesses. You need to be honest about those things. You need to possess your body in such a way that it is for purity, for holy things, rather than unholy things, including your mind. And so the contrast here is, You're to possess your body, and your body is to be used for things that are holy and honorable in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like those who don't even know God. You you used to walk that way. For those of us saved later in life, rather than very, very young ages before puberty, we remember often the lustful passion that we pursued when we didn't know God and we were slaves of that. He says, that's not you anymore. Now possess your body, your vessel in sanctification and honor. Don't act like those who don't know God. There should be a difference in how we conduct ourselves and view the purpose of our bodies even. They're not for lustful passions. They're for glorifying God. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And when you do so, how you conduct yourself, how you dress, will be different from the world, and it should stand out more and more and more. As the world continues to go down the path of inventors of lustful passions, So he says, know how to possess your your body, control your body to be sensible in decisions you make and knowing your weaknesses. But then he says, consider others in verse 6. And that, this is what the will of God is, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. The word transgress means to sin against. 
The word defraud means to take advantage of, to exploit. To defraud is to selfishly and greedily take someone, something from someone for personal gain, but also you can actually, through sexual morality, use a person for your own supposed advantage and your own sinful pleasures. Adultery transgresses and defrauds another person. Fornication, premarital sex, transgresses and defrauds another person. This is one of the ways you think sensibly and rightly about this. When you're tempted to lust, to look at something that is not holy but unholy, or to commit an act of fornication or adultery, you need to be reminded that is someone's daughter. And you're transgressing and defrauding her and that father and mother or that's someone's wife, and now you are coveting someone else's wife. And you would say, if I go and I steal something from your house, that should be punished. But with our minds, we take advantage of and exploit people and don't think about we're defrauding someone. You're defrauding the person. And so, men, I often counsel men in these kinds of situations while I sit down with them one of the things so the first thing is please God but one of the other things is as you're seeking to please God remember this person's made in the image of God's going to spend eternity in heaven or hell don't use them for your own sinful passions understand you're defrauding them you're defrauding a husband when you lust after that wife and when you begin to look at it that way now you're not thinking about defrauding a person, taking advantage of them and exploiting them for your sinful passions. But now think, how can I pray for that person? What is a loving thing that I can do? And often the loving thing is just to flee and dwell on things that are holy and righteous. Man, we've all been there. You're walking somewhere with your wife and your daughters and and you see a guy looking up and down at your wife and daughters. And that upsets you, doesn't it? It shouldn't be that way. They're defrauding them and you. They're transgressing against God, but also you. Think of it the same way for you. That's a deterrent and an aid. Treat everyone as you would want to be treated. God has created the body for sexual intimacy and he's done so in a way that is lawful. And so don't defraud and transgress others, but instead seek to satisfy a good and holy desire in the relationship of marriage. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Instead, if I may use the word, covet your own. How do you do that? Pursue a godly marriage and a good and godly union and relationship with your wife. Purpose to pursue holiness in your marriage. Purpose to love your wife. Purpose to be satiated with your wife. Because that is good and holy. That's not defrauding anyone. That's then when God says, this is what I've created and it's good. Sometimes men say, well, 
my wife doesn't desire that relationship the way it should be? Could it be because you're not a man pursuing the pleasures of God? And you're not loving her and serving her and seeking her spiritual good. And instead, you're just looking for that one aspect of the relationship. Men, you know this is true. Your wife will indeed respond to you if you love her with all your heart according to the word of God. And so instead of defrauding your brother in the matter, as Paul says... Pursue a godly marriage and cultivate holy desires in the marriage. For the marriage bed is holy. But outside of marriage, it is unholy. Proverbs 5, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets... Let them be yours alone and not for a stranger with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. For that is holy. So be satiated with your wife's love. And don't defraud your brother in the matter. Briefly, verse 6, understand the consequences. He says, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Now again, it sounds like he's rebuking them for something they're doing, and he's saying God's going to punish you for these things. No, he's saying they need to excel more. They're actually walking in this way, but he's reminding them that One of the deterrents to this is we need to understand the seriousness of sin, and in particular this sin. God does not let it go, so to speak. You say, well, I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. My faith is in Christ. Maybe. But if you could ask David, King David. David, are you in heaven? Do you know the joy of your sins forgiven? Yes, but this is a sin I wish I had never committed. Oh, the sorrow. It may not be eternal wrath for the believer, but God will not be mocked. We have, unfortunately, at times lost the understanding that there are consequences to our sin, even as believers. No, not eternal condemnation. But sexual sin is still an abomination to the Lord, and he will not let it go. There is a day that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When Paul said, I make it my ambition to be pleasing to the Lord, he goes on to say, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's a day of judgment in which we will give an account to God for how we lived our lives. And Paul says we need to be reminded of that. Don't use grace as an excuse to sin. He said we've solemnly solemnly warned you of these things previously. And then he says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. 
Instead, God has called us in sanctification, holiness. So, therefore, here's the, here's the, concept, or the, the ultimate conclusion. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God. And these are commands from God himself. And he says, God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So why is that there? It's a reminder again. God has given you his Holy Spirit to strengthen you, to sanctify you. He's the Holy Spirit. And he indwells you and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But this Holy Spirit is at work. And he has given you this good gift of the Holy Spirit. And all this should stir up our hearts when we're tempted in this area to say, how can I sin against God? When he has been so gracious to me in Christ, he's given me all that I need for life and godliness, the spirit using the word, the spirit and the commandments. And so don't reject it, but receive it. Let me give you just a few points, very briefly, points of final application. There are so many, but let me just give you some. Young men, young men, cultivate holiness now. Now, young men, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Young men, pursue this love for God. Let your life be Godward. Do it at a young age, young men. For one reason why there are so many godly young women who are unmarried is there is a lack of godly young men who have not bowed the knee to sexual morality. So young men, For the glory of God. Pursue holiness in this area now. Be careful how you walk. And prepare for marriage by being a lover of God. A pursuer of holiness. And ladies, do not enter into a relationship with a man who is a slave to sexual morality. It will lead you to many sorrows. It is better to be single. And to glorify God in your singleness than to marry a man who's a slave to sexual morality. Married young men seek discipleship from a godly man, from godly fathers, from godly believers. Don't just think, I can handle this and I'll be okay. No, seek discipleship. You say, well, I'm not struggling with that. I don't know that I need to be in a covenant group or in this accountability relationship. You're not struggling with Excel still more. Pursue accountability and discipleship from those who know the temptations you will have. Fathers, model faithfulness to God and to your wife in your home. Love your wives. Be faithful to your God. And keep the marriage covenant with your wife. Be an example to your sons of holiness and faithfulness to the marriage covenant. And then just generally, men, be honest. Lying, deception, and hypocrisy is always, no exceptions, it's always a part of sexual sin. 
So be honest. Stop covering it up. Confess your sin to God, but also to others. Don't keep it a secret any longer. Seek accountability and discipleship. If you're enslaved to sexual sin, if you're wrestling in this area, you've heard me use those three words, if I can remember them. Disclosure, disassociation, discipleship. You need to disclose your sin or you'll never repent of it. You need to disassociate from it and then seek discipleship over the long haul. Men, I plead with you, pursue holiness. Kill sin, hate sin, walk humbly with God. Seek his glory, not your own. Die to self. Be faithful to God and to your wife. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Be holy men. Be sexually pure men to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the men in this church, young and old. Father, I pray we would be holy men. Wherever we are this day, may we hear the word of God and may we be godly men. May we be men of humility, men who are putting sin to death in our lives by your grace. Men who are pursuing your glory, pleasing you. And Father, in this way, may the church be built up, may homes be built up, but may you be glorified in your church, we pray. And Father, I pray, give us strength by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And in spite of all of the corruption around us and all of the the powers of darkness and the evil one and even our own sinful passions that press upon us, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make us holy men that shine as lights, exposing the darkness of this world rather than participating in it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.